The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. America's first power plant was built in Manhattan. The first transmission of electricity occurred between Niagara Falls and Buffalo, and the first public power organization was founded in New York State. Today, that power provider, the New York Power Authority, or NYPA, is working to digitize the state's grid end-to-end. We'll talk with NYPA's CEO about his push to create a digital foundry where the next generation of electricity inventors and innovators can reimagine the grid. In the second half of the show, our very own Catherine Hamilton gives us an update from the World Economic Forum, where thinkers from all across the globe are also reimagining the energy system. Catherine joins us this week from the Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where she is educating the global elite about energy storage and grid modernization. How are things in Davos, Catherine? It's great. It's really exciting, but it's really, really cold, um, and I probably shouldn't complain. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to getting some of your, your updates. I've been following the media coverage and some of the speeches, so a lot to dissect there. Jigger Shah is in his usual perch in New York City. And Jigger, you've been busy too. This week, your firm, Generate Capital, unveiled a partnership with Clean Capital and plans to invest up to $300 million in various projects, mostly in distributed solar. You actually co-wrote a series on the underserved small commercial solar market with our very own senior analyst, Nicole Litvak. Are those the kinds of projects you're pursuing? Yeah, you know, I think that there's just a tremendous opportunity in this sector. And, you know, we're just a humble servant to the entrepreneurs that are busting their, you know, butt trying to figure out the business model innovation to unlock them. Well, I got to say, in introducing the both of you, I'm feeling a bit inadequate this week. I mean, Catherine's rubbing elbows with the biggest names in the world. Jigger's helping broker hundreds of millions of dollars for solar projects. And to top it all off, we have Gil Quinones here, who is the president and CEO of the New York Power Authority, who is a powerhouse in his own right. Gil was previously co-chairman of New York's Energy Highway Task Force. He served in the Bloomberg administration as senior VP of Energy and Telecommunications, is chairman of the board at the Electric Power Research Institute, and vice chairman of the board of the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, where I know he works with Jigger. Uh, I could go on, but let me introduce Gil. Gil, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be with you. So this is a crazy time for New York's energy system. The state has a 50% renewable electricity goal. It's undertaking this incredibly complicated task of reforming utilities. It just announced the controversial closure of the Indian Point nuclear plant with plans to replace a lot of the generation with offshore wind. It's trying to support manufacturing in a big way. 
including Tesla and SolarCity's Buffalo facility. And it also needs to manage and build transmission lines to bring remote renewables to load centers. It's kind of hard to fathom how much is going on at once in New York State. So for those who may not know, explain the scope of NYPA's operations and, and how it's uniquely impacted by all these moving pieces. Well, NYPA is the largest public power utility in the United States. We produce about 25% of all electricity in New York State, 70% of that from uh, renewable hydroelectric power. And uh, we also own a third of the large power transmission grid. And if you look at the configuration of our transmission system, we are really the backbone of the state's power grid. NIPA, to us, the common thread is digital. And so we are looking at creating what we call digital twins of our power plants and substations and transmission systems. Uh, and we're doing the same all the way to the customer sites. So right now we have 3,400 buildings connected to our network operation center called New York Energy Manager. Uh, 1,200 of those are streaming real-time data. We are putting deep submetering sensors, data acquisition devices, gateways to really understand uh, the disaggregated load profiles of buildings so that we can help optimize their use. But also, as you had mentioned at the beginning of your uh, introduction, create digital foundries. And what that means is that this, this open database of all this information that we have with standard application program interfaces can be used by technology companies, hardware, software, to develop new products and services. could be used by utilities once they have their distribution service platform provider uh, set up to help in the planning and operation of the distribution grid. It can be used by the New York ISO, the manager of uh, the big grid, the transmission system. And it could be used by researchers and um, students to help understand how the new world of integrated uh, grid system uh, has to exist. So that, 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 that's we're, we're very, very excited with that. And, and on the on the power plant side, we're doing the same. We're going to create a, a system, an open system, this in partnership with GE's Predicts platform to invite uh, partners to develop what I would call apps so that we can uh, have a smarter grid, a cleaner grid, and, a, and an optimized grid. I love this concept of the digital foundry. And I think it illustrates why NIPA is unique as a public power organization because you have all these public goals linked up to um, the services that you're providing. So the the goal is to provide this platform for utilities, the researchers, the students, the analytics companies to be able to come in for you to make money and to also provide this broader economic service so that you can attract new businesses to the state. And, and that's what makes it different from traditional investor-owned utilities, for example. Absolutely. And, and you know, our role and goal here in New York is to help power the economic development of our state by providing low-cost energy. And, you know, you talked about 
we were the first state where the power plant was created by Thomas Edison and the transmission system occurred from Niagara Falls to Buffalo by Nikolai Tesla. Uh, we are excited and prepared to lead once again in the next generation of transformation of the electric, electric uh, industry. Gil, how are third-party innovators who are coming up with new models for consumer engagement and really, I'm sure, are looking at the public building sector as a really good market, how are they able or are they able to engage in this energy management platform that you have? Well, we have our uh, New York Energy Manager Operations Center in Albany. We will have a very, very specific space uh, that where we will invite the technology companies and the researchers to be there and to work uh, alongside each other. It could be a uh, an open source um, R&D, for lack of a better term. It could be a tailored collaboration, or some companies may want to do proprietary uh, application development using our data. Um, all of the above, we will we will accommodate because we think that that what's going to to really leverage uh, the transformations that needed in our industry. So, Gil, I know that you've been working hard on getting all of the state buildings on this um, energy manager, but you know you guys also provide electricity to many other public authorities like um, the New York Housing Authority or New York City or municipalities across the state. You know what luck have you had getting those folks to um, conform to the system and and bring their assets online. Oh, it's been a great relationship. Uh, we are now putting smart meters and sensors all across the port. For example, the Port Authority airports and all of their facilities across the city. So everybody's been uh, really excited with what what we're doing and are fully participating. I wouldn't be surprised over the next three to four years that we'll have twenty thousand buildings connected, and we have digital twins of those 20,000 buildings of various types. And I think that will be a powerful set of information that, uh, you know, technology companies and utilities and ISOs and researchers, you know, they can do whatever they need to do. I believe that new products and services are going to be developed that we haven't even thought about today. Now, we're going to be doing that also on the power plant side. You know, so we are go- creating a digital twin of our 18 power plants, 1,400 circuit miles of transmission, 24 substations. And the big and smaller companies involved in that area, whether it's GE, ABB, Alstom, uh, Siemens, I, I'm sure are going to be coming in and, and uh, leaving their data scientists and data analytics people and engineers uh, we are creating the same hub here in our uh, White Plains office where uh, all of that data will be streaming in, in and all the visualization tools. And we will have spaces and uh, computers and, and other tools that the third-party providers can come in and, and use and work with our team. Right. But just to push you a little bit on this, I mean, 20,000 buildings is a lot. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, you know, it it's not every building. And so one of the challenges, and you're on the you know board of the Alliance to Save Energy, um, that energy efficiency has had is this opt-in system just never seems to be good enough to get everything on board. That the only way you really reach your goals is through mandates like building codes or 
compliance standards. I mean, how easy or hard is it for NIPA to actually just mandate that all their customers get onto Energy Manager? But doesn't the state have a mandate of 20% efficient buildings state, in, for public the, buildings, right? The state does, but not necessarily the municipalities that they serve. Yeah. So the state has a mandate. Um, the mu- municipalities are starting to to come in just on their own jigger because they're seeing uh, so much value to it. You know, now the, the 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 cost of sensors, the cost of bringing the data back, the cost of storage is not really that much anymore. Well, Gil, you know what makes m- music to my ears is the fact that you guys can become um, kind of you can bridge the gap between um, the distributed side and uh, the system operator in getting that data. So one of the frustrations with New York Rev with the third party innovation community is that the utilities are so risk averse and they haven't had a lot of learnings yet. And so if you all have data based on learnings, they can they can use that to help develop you know, what is the best business model where the technologies we're willing to take a risk on. Um, it seems like it's going to help everybody and help the utilities just as much and certainly help those folks that I work with um, in the REV. Absolutely. I mean, we are, think of NIPA as that uh, entity that can be a first mover on a lot of this innovative ideas. For example, we put in a, a smart grid system on our transmission line from Albany to the lower Hudson Valley without changing the line itself. And we increase the transfer capability by 440 megawatts. We can bring more power from upstate to downstate. And other utilities can do that too because we've proven we can do it at a very minimal cost. So uh, things like that, th- NIPA can take the, the risk and, and be an example. You know, we don't have to go to the Public Service Commission and get approval, approval on an 11-month rate case. We can, can go to our board, go try this because we believe it's in the benefit of, of, of the public. And we've done a lot of those uh, through the years at the Power Authority. In our last episode, we talked about data sharing among uh, transportation providers like Uber and uh, local and state governments. And uh, we've also talked about data sharing and the problems associated with data sharing between utilities and distributed energy companies when it comes to privacy and security concerns uh, and just general competitiveness concerns. Um, How is your mandate different in terms of data sharing from, again, an investor-owned utility? And what concerns do you have when you talk about opening up all this information to third parties as part of this digital foundry? I'm sure plenty of sticky issues that you need to deal with as well. Yes. So we have not figured everything. But in our case, if we could anonymize different building types, for example, at different locations, that will be fine. So let's just make an example. A storage company wants to to do a software in the loop testing of their product with our system. And they say, okay, we want to target all the the hospitals with this kind of load profile in the Con Ed service territory and, and you know, just by simulation put their batteries in those locations and see what the impacts cost benefit will be depending on the various tariffs. Uh, you know, that's one thing that could be done. So I think there are ways of handling the privacy issue. 
but we haven't figured everything out at this point. Uh, just like in cyber, we need to, to really focus on, on how to do that properly. And you've got to make money off it too. Absolutely. I mean, NIPA being a not-for-profit entity, I mean, we would like to recover our costs plus our cost of capital. We're, we're not uh, uh, a private equity uh, looking for private equity type returns. And so from that perspective, we're a little different. And our goal really is hopefully to create this ecosystem of innovation so that those companies will then set up shop, invest in New York, create jobs in New York. That's kind of more of our, our, our play. So on that point, Gil, I mean, just to, you know, I've, obviously we're colleagues on the NYSERDA board and I have the utmost respect for what you and NYPA are doing, but just to push you a little bit for our listeners, uh, you know, I think the rev really hasn't turned out as well as we had hoped. I think it's sort of devolved into these sort of high profile projects like BQDM. You know, the real sort of goal of it was these DERs and, you know, like NIPA, for instance, supplies um, a lot of power to municipalities and they have caps on the total amount of demand that they're supposed to be able to pull at any one time. And so a lot of these advanced tools from smart grid to energy manager could be used by these municipalities to actually manage their power consumption and their peak demand and all of these other pieces. And so, you know, NIPA really could be a more active player in testing out REV solutions as opposed to hardware-based solutions um, for these sort of intractable problems on the grid. Well, I think it's important to have a, a more detailed REV conversation because you have worked in every high-profile position dealing with energy in New York State in some way. And so you just – you understand the, the policy and the politics throughout in New York State. And I'm, I'd like to figure out what you think about the REV process so far. Um, no one believed that this would happen overnight. But I think a couple years on, people are starting to realize that this is going to take way longer. And there's still plenty of fighting between – the distributed energy companies, the utilities, and the regulators, and people are disagreeing on a heck of a lot more than they're agreeing on. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of players involved. I would argue that a lot has already happened. If you look at, I've been in this industry now more than 26 years, uh, working for a utility, large utility, Con Edison, then working for Mayor Bloomberg, and now at the state level at NIPA. If you look at just the 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 amount of time that has evolved under REV, a lot has happened already if you compare it to the past 25, 26 years. It's very complicated. Uh, and innovation has to happen at every sector, not just technology, not just operations, not just utilities, but uh, in, regula in regulation. And I think that uh, New York has been leading on that, pushing the envelope on regulatory innovation. And so, but it will take time. It's, it's a complicated business. I, I like to joke with, uh, you know, my friends who talk about how complicated the airline business is. And I, I keep telling them, well, at least you can park the airplane inside a hangar and upgrade its electronics. I can't do that with my substation. I have to upgrade my substation while it's working 24 seven, 365. We can't shut down the system and then upgrade it. So it's a very, very complicated system, uh, but we're, we're making progress. 
and uh, a lot more progress can happen. And it's really hard to animate a market and create a whole new business model structure in a very regulated system. Absolutely. Or to, to figure out what remains regulated and what, what should be competitive. Uh, that will, I think, take some time, uh, take some, some trial and error. One thing that we're not good in the utility business, and not just New York, but across the, the U.S., is um, you know, we're not really rewarded for trying and then failing. And and in in and Jigger would know this in the in the world where you really want to innovate and innovate fast, failing has to be part of the equation. Well, I certainly agree. I mean, the the failing part is the is the part that I think makes the most people nervous. And I don't mean failing in terms of grid reliability. I I think that we've got a lot of places where that's not really at risk. It's really the failing in. Um, using the next generation grid edge technologies, my sense is is that we we oftentimes lean too heavily on tried and true technologies, even though there are deals that are, you know, technologies are ninety percent cheaper um, to meet the task, but they're just not as well known or well respected. So you have been at Con Edison, you are now at NIPA, and you have played various roles in state government and you are on the board of you know every single meaningful energy organization in this country uh how 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 optimistic are you about the ability of the utility industry to embrace change and to come up with fundamentally new business models to accommodate new players on the grid and make money for themselves while doing so i'm optimistic i'm optimistic because the trends in technology uh, the you know the cost curves that are happening there, the trends in uh, people's behavior and and choices I think will continue, uh, and the utilities will have to to go, maybe kicking and screaming, but we have no choice, and so it's incumbent among entities like NIPA to try things out to be. A leader. Uh, we may fail from time to time, but I think we will have a lot more successes than failures. And hopefully, by doing so, and by doing it in New York, our governor always says that that when we try something in New York and it works, all the other states tend to follow. And so that's what I'm hopeful for. That's what I'm optimistic about. Gil Quinones is the president and CEO of the New York Power Authority, who joined us from White Plains, New York. Gil, thanks for coming on the show and uh, giving us your time. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen and, and Catherine. Safe travels back from Davos. And Jigger, I look forward to see you soon at our board meeting. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. 
You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. All right, so on to the second half of the show. We are taking a direct flight from New York to Davos, where Catherine is going to guide us through some of what she's seeing and hearing at the World Economic Forum. I've been scanning the headlines for updates from the summit, and I'm seeing a lot of reporting on how the balance of power on climate is shifting from the U.S. to, to China. In fact, Chinese President Xi Jinping was there on Tuesday, where he delivered a wide-ranging speech on globalization and wagged his finger at Trump about his threats to walk away from the global climate deal. So let's start there. How did that speech go over, and how does it feed into this narrative that China's now got this diplomatic higher ground? So first, let me just say why I'm here. Um, I'm not a head of state. I'm not a Fortune 500 CEO, and I'm not a movie star, no matter what people tell us about the podcast. Um, But I am here as co-chair of the Future of Energy Council. So it's part of the World Economic Forum, and we basically serve as a think tank to the whole forum. So I'm here doing a bunch of meetings and participating on panels, moderating panels, et cetera. So yes, when President Xi spoke, that was huge news because if you just read what he said, the transcript, he sounded like an American president. He talked about free trade and he talked about not having a trade war and about globalization. And that was really the biggest news to come out. Um, We also had Secretary Kerry come we had Vice President Biden here. And then we also had a member of the Trump team coming to try to um, you know, explain a little bit about Trump's thinking. Um, and so there, there were a lot of sort of large political issues at play. I think the, the theme that I've taken away is really disruption. And it's political disruption, but also technology disruption, which can actually be a really good thing. So what I'm focused on are things that are really, really interesting decentralization, digitization, a lot of what Gil was talking about, we've been talking about here, um, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, storage and distributed energy resources, those are really big here. Um, and, and all of this is kind of in the services service of what are we going to do about Paris? And everybody is still on board with Paris, and nobody thinks that the U.S., uh, whether the U.S. backs out or not, is going to make that much difference to others moving forward. So others are committed The pace could slow, the scale could slow, depending upon what the U.S. does. But everyone here is saying, you know, clean energy is irreversible. Um, And the climate solutions are here and they're going to continue to come. And everybody else is still committed to meeting the goals. I saw that 60 CEOs of some of the largest corporations in the world are reportedly gathering together in a session to address climate change uh, I guess this probably already happened, this meeting. Have you heard anything about about that? And then, uh, again, how does that play into this broader narrative that corporations are doing this stuff no matter what policy be damned? Yeah, it's pretty interesting because there really are kind of two sort of major sectors here. I went to a session this afternoon on um, the future of energy, like the global future of energy, and I thought it was going to be about what I do every day, what we do. <laughs> And it was about oil and oil prices. Um, so OPEC was there. And, um, you know, there's this definite, you know, there, there are the CEOs of the majors and then there are all the people working on climate. And I think there is going to need to be some way to pull all of those together. And hearing in some of the more private meetings, the oil and gas folks talking about how they are really trying to move their investments too and how they're trying to think about transitioning 
and uh, I think that's happening with everybody. So it really, the corporations really are stepping up. They're investing a lot of money in solutions and they're kind of trying to figure out what's, what's our role moving forward with climate. I'm pretty interested in this tech piece because all of a sudden policymakers and now these global thinkers are having to, to really deal with artificial intelligence. And you mentioned blockchain when we were chatting through email about this, uh, distributed resources, of course, robotics, energy storage, your favorite topic in the world. Um, is there a cohesive narrative about all these technologies coming together there, do you feel like? Or are they being talked about individually? Well, I think everybody's trying to get their heads around what they are. What's really interesting is I was on this other council in the WEF called the Future of Electricity two and a half years ago. And I walked in and I said, storage is the is the next big thing. And people looked at me like I had a second head. They said, like, what is it? Is that a thing? And now storage is just like regular stuff that they talk about. That's not even the cool stuff anymore. So um, I don't know that there's a cohesive narrative relative to what the technologies are. Everything is really kind of in the service of this fourth industrial revolution that um, that Klaus Schwab, the head of the WEF, talks about, which is focusing on systems rather than technologies, um, empowering societies, um, you know, developing our future by design rather than by default, and then also making everything very value-based. So those are kind of the things that everything is built on here. So if there is a narrative, it's about how does this all kind of feed into the way the fourth industrial revolution is going to move forward. So the one concern I have, Catherine, which I mean, you kind of brought up with the session that you talked about, is that my own experience in this is that People love solar because it feels very isolated. It feels like it's on the roof. It sort of feels like energy efficiency because the building just uses less power from the grid's perspective. But the interplay between renewable energy and gas and oil is something that I don't think people have really yet got hit in the face with. I mean, my own sense is that within the next few years, renewable energy will be providing 100% of all new incremental energy needs for the entire world, right? And so like, so that means that oil and gas is no longer needed to provide the incremental energy need for the world. And so I don't think people are actually viewing it that way. Well, it's interesting. It, it does depend. There are some people who are, and, and this whole systems approach, people are starting to think about that. So during the panel today that, um, that was on CNN um, and the CEO of Engie was there and she said, like we are investing in gas and in solar and a distribution, you know, distributed generation or distributed energy resources, which also includes storage. So she was definitely connecting the dots and making and trying to make sure that this is like we're really thinking about this holistically and in a systems way and in the way that they move their investments forward. So there are people talking about it. I don't I don't know that it's proliferated everywhere. So I think you're right about that. Um, but people, while people are fully on board with solar, they also understand that it's solar plus a lot of other stuff. But I'd love your take on how this happens, right? When when fracking was just tiny back in 2008, people were like, this is going to change the new world order. And then Wall Street Journal was saying we we're going to be the largest oil producer, which has never been true, by the way. All of this BS about us being the largest world oil producer is really about us counting natural gas liquids as oil. Which yeah, it's isn't, liquid fuels, all liquid fuels. Yeah, which is complete and utter horseshit. But like... But like the narrative went really fast. Suddenly Davos was like the new world order is changing and OPEC is in the toilet and da 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 and whatever else. But like like we can't 
we can't seem to create that kind of buzz. We're just sort of like a tech thing. We're like an iPhone. We're not like a, we're not like earth shattering in the energy world. The thing is, I think everybody does agree here. And there are people from all over the world, obviously that come here. They're in agreement that we need to get to like a zero carbon tech, zero carbon world. And so with that in mind, gas is not going to be the long-term solution. So they're realizing that if it's going to be gas, it's going to be uh, the kind of uses that you have with gas, but with say hydrogen or biogas, they're not, I mean, they realize that that is a short-term solution. They also understand that, you know, gas has replaced coal and lowered emissions greatly in a lot of places, including the United States. But there really is an understanding that we have to move to solutions, Jigger, that you and I agree are, are the ones that we have to go to, which are renewables. Yeah, but I, see, I disagree with you, Jigger, and I'm going to play armchair quarterback here because, of course, I'm not in Davos having those conversations. But I've seen enough of the presentations, and I, I think we need to step back here and realize what a remarkable moment this is that now pretty much everyone agrees, business leaders and policymakers alike, that it kind of doesn't matter what the U.S. does over the next four years, that everyone's going to act on their own, and that the Chinese president is coming in and saying that environmental issues and renewable energy development and energy access are the fundamental issues of our time, and that they're going to go ahead and meet the Paris Climate Agreements and invest in renewables no matter what. That is so completely different than the conversation we were having just a few years ago. That to me is an indication that people are taking this very seriously and not just treating it like an iPhone. Yeah, but here's the thing, Stephen, is that, you know, that feels a lot like incremental, well, this is great, this is interesting. Like, I mean, I talk to investors all day, right? The number of high net worth family offices that I know of that bought fracking junk bonds in 2010, but still have not bought, you know, the clean capital, um, you know, shares and, you know, wonder capital shares and, you know, and, and things in the solar and wind industry is gargantuan, right? I just think that when you think about pension funds, the number of pension funds that have $200 billion into, um, into fracking bonds that are junk bonds that are never going to pay themselves back, uh, compared to our bonds, like just a wide, wide gulf. And we have been writing reports from Mercer and all these other investment councils and all these people are at Davos. Like, I mean, I'm not suggesting they don't see the future, but what I'm suggesting is that when you see how fast capital flows changed around fracking, that is not happening at the same speed and scale. We are getting our money from completely different sources of capital. Yeah, I do think there's a recognition that there's a lot left on the table from private wealth. And that has been a topic here. So I think that could change. I think that um, I'm not saying it'll change overnight or at the same speed, but there's a lot of buzz around that here. Just to give you an example of this, Stephen, if you take Bloomberg, Michael Dell, Gates, they own 10 times more um, fossil fuel assets than renewable energy assets in their own portfolio while championing climate change. Well, um, I am hearing a lot about uh, Gates because some folks in our cohort are funded by him. And 
and Mission Innovation um, and his whole team are in very close alliance with, with the World Economic Forum. So they're trying to partner and make sure that the investments are impactful and do what they need to do um, and, are, and are focused not just on you know energy, but sustainability writ large. So it looks at all the ecosystems. And I think um, that has definitely been, there's been a lot of talk around that and a lot of, of, of talk about it being one of the tools that we can use to really move things quickly. Okay, so I know that we have to scatter here and we've got to let Catherine go uh, catch up on the events in Davos. So let's just tell our listeners something they do not know to wrap up. Jigger, what's your story this week? Well, I'm going to do a little bit of log rolling. Um, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, we did this $300 million deal with Clean Capital. And I, I don't know if people know the Clean Capital story that well, but you know, John Powers um, leads the team there and, you know, fought uh, tourists in Iraq and then was at the White House. He supported the renewable energy rollout at the Department of the Army. Um, I just, you know, I just can't say enough about how important, um, you know, I think that the the uh, the partnership that we struck there is. And really what they're doing is offering an off-ramp for real estate investors. There's, you know, over 10,000 plus projects that were funded with 1603 grant program dollars that are stuck in real estate investors' hands that want to offload them. And there's really no good place to sell them because there's like $5 million portfolios. Um, and these guys have figured out a systematic way of figuring out how to how to sell those. And liquidity is one of the key things that a lot of these family offices are looking for. They don't want to be stuck in 20-year investments necessarily. Yeah, I love that, Jigger. He, they're doing really cool stuff, and it's a it's really creative secondary market. Well, congrats on the partnership. Thanks. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, so one of the things that came out of these meetings uh, was this Hydrogen Council, which has 13 members. They just announced this big partnership of funds. They're trying to raise $10.7 billion in five years to invest in hydrogen infrastructure. Um, Toyota, BMW, Daimler, Honda, Hyundai, Total, Air Liquide, Linda. So, so it's car companies, oil and gas majors, and then also mining company, Anglo-American, Engie, Alstom, Kawasaki, all these folks have gotten together to say we want to really invest in hydrogen, which uh, is not something the U.S. has taken a big position on, but it's really interesting to see that they're doing that here. Uh, they're taking a big commitment here. I love hydrogen, I have to say. Like, I honestly think it's the easiest way to do energy storage because, um, like, it's seasonal energy storage. But, like, I have, like, nobody else who agrees with me. Uh, you would love it here then. That's all they're talking about. All right. Well, as we speak, I think Rick Perry is on Capitol Hill getting grilled as, of course, the nominee for to, to head the energy department. It is the last day for Ernest Moniz and his team. And just this morning, The Hill reported that the White House was working with various groups in D.C., including the Heritage Foundation, to come up with a proposed budget that would slash funding for nuclear physics and advanced computing, would eliminate the Office of Electricity, kill the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, and kill the Office of Fossil Energy, which promotes both fossil fuels and also efficient use of fossil fuels to reduce emissions. And then, of course, there's all this question about um, you know, funding the Climate Fund under the State Department and uh, funding OPIC, 
to invest in overseas uh, renewable energy ventures. That all looks like it's going to get slashed. Meanwhile, Rick Perry was on Capitol Hill saying that he believes in uh, very strong investments in research and development and in clean tech. So not a surprise that we're getting major conflicts between the nominee and the Trump administration. And even though we're uh, well into this and we're on the eve of President Trump taking office, we have no idea what this administration is going to do. <laughs> you know, another example of the split between environmental groups and clean tech is that AWEA um, has endorsed Rick Perry. That's right. This morning or maybe yesterday they sent out their endorsement letter to Congress. Uh, you know, I think that's going to be the real interesting uh, thing to watch during this administration is how much clean tech pivots towards the incoming administration and the enviros, you know, stay as the they, a loyal opposition. They have no choice. They're going to pivot toward the administration. Of course they are. I think there's going to be a much bigger split. Yeah, we'll have to see, though, because um, a lot of things are really popular in Congress that aren't popular with the incoming uh, well, or with the Heritage Foundation. We don't really know how, you know, how literally they're going to take this report. But um, it's Congress that's going to decide where the funding goes. We're going to see where that shakes out. Exactly. And hey, you decide to listen to this show every week. So thank you for that. Pass this along to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anybody, your students. We have professors who have their students listen to this show. We really appreciate your support. And if you can spread the word by both passing a link or you know, providing a rating or a review on iTunes, it would greatly help us out. You can also send us show ideas to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you from New York City in our next show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.